Wednesday night Bible study. We're grateful for your presence. Thanks for being here. We also say a word of welcome to those who are streaming our Bible study. We're grateful for your presence as well. Um, again, those of you here in the room, if you need to get up for whatever reason, you're more than welcome to do so. We would just ask that you go out the one door in the back uh, because th these doors have been closed off so that uh, we don't have people uh, traffic going in and out. There's still people out in the hallway. But we're thankful that you're here. As you all know, for those of you who participated in the Gospel of Luke study in the past, we have had several months break, and we're going to resume tonight. But what I want to do to begin with before we delve into the Gospel of Luke is kind of do a little refresher course for part of the evening so we can be reminded of the uniqueness of the Gospel of Luke itself. It's an extraordinary book, and I want to kind of go through, give you some information so hopefully that will be helpful. When we start tonight, we're going to pick up where we left off, and that is in the 12th chapter with verse 35. Now, let me just tell you, it's okay if you were not a part of the study previously. It, the Gospel of Luke is a unique gospel in a lot of ways. Hopefully, you'll go back and read the previous chapters, and then you'll fall right in and continue on. But there's, um, there's not going to be a lot of confusion, hopefully, if you just start with the 12th chapter, verse 35 tonight, and you weren't here previously. So let me give you, again, some background information. For some of you, this might be a little tedious because you know all of this, but it's important that we refresh our minds and remember uh, a good deal about the gospel of Luke that makes it unique and a standalone gospel in many ways from the other three. So remember, the word gospel itself means good news. There are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They are not written, if you will, in chronological order. In other words, most scholars believe, almost without exception, that the first of the four gospels to be written was the gospel of Mark. It is the shortest gospel, if you will, as well. In the Gospel of Mark, there's this extraordinary sense of urgency on the part of Jesus. The word immediately is used over and over again. Jesus gets into a boat, and immediately, when he gets to the other side, someone greets him. And immediately, over and over again, or right away, phrases like that, Mark stresses that Jesus is a suffering servant, and his ministry, compacted down into three years, has to be done with this sense of urgency. So Mark, most scholars believe, almost without exception, that it is the first of the four Gospels to be written. Probably written somewhere between the mid-first century 50s and the first century to the late 60s of the first century. Now, most scholars debate whether or not Matthew or Luke was written next. Uh, there is some debate about that. I actually had a professor in seminary who believed that the first of the four Gospels to be written was Matthew, but most scholars would argue that point. And most scholars believe that Matthew and Luke used Mark as a resource to check off to make sure they were accurate in their description of who Jesus is with regard to events. And then finally, without exception, nobody disputes that the last of the four Gospels to be written was the Gospel of John toward the end of the first century. And John is not what we call one of the synoptic Gospels. The word synoptic means viewed together. 
So the three synoptic gospels are Matthew, Mark, and Luke. There are a lot of similarities in those three books. John is distinctly different in a variety of ways, which we'll talk more about in just a moment. So as I mentioned to you, Mark is the most dramatic of the four gospels. Uh, it, it, it is a representation of Jesus as one who is oftentimes very misunderstood. In the Gospel of Mark, the disciples are almost buffoon-like. They never really seem to understand who Jesus is until the end of his life after the resurrection. So there's this uniqueness about Mark as a standalone gospel. The most structured of the four gospels is the Matthew as uh, the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, and Matthew's was a Jew himself. Matthew, also known as Levi, do you remember what his profession was, if you will? He was previously a tax collector, one of the disciples of Jesus. Matthew was a Jew. And so Matthew's whole understanding of who Jesus is is based on Old Testament prophecy. In other words, what Matthew does continually is quote what we would call the Old Testament. To say, see, those Old Testament prophets, those other Old Testament figures were talking about this one named Jesus. The emphasis is that Jews, one of your very own, is the anointed one. His name is Jesus. He is among us. Then you have John, which is the most theological, if you will, of the four Gospels. John is the one who reveals that Jesus is the word, that he is God in flesh. Now, what makes John unique is that John has no parables, for example, in it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are filled with the parables of Jesus. There's not one parable in the gospel of John. And in John, there is a lot of metaphorical language. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the living water. He's the word. A lot of metaphorical language in the gospel of John. Now, as I mentioned just a moment ago, because we're studying uh, the Gospel of Luke, it is the most thematic of the four Gospels. Uh, Jesus is portrayed in the Gospel of Luke as a Savior for all people. Not that the others don't emphasize that as well, but when Luke talks about it being all people, it refers also to the outcasts. There's a lot of emphasis on Jesus in relationship with women with regard to acknowledging them in the Gospel of Luke that is unique. Uh, and Gentiles in the Gospel of Luke are very much a part of the kingdom of God as well. Now, I'll give you some examples in just a moment of the uniqueness between Luke and Matthew. But Luke himself was a Gentile convert. Luke was not a Jew. He was not a follower of Jesus initially. He was not one of the original disciples. He was a Gentile convert. His name is not mentioned in the gospel at all. Now, what we know about Luke is that he wrote two books in the New Testament. He wrote the gospel of Luke, and he wrote the book of Acts. And they're written to someone by the name of Theophilus. I'll talk more about Theophilus in just a moment because we don't know much about him, quite frankly. He comes from a Greek background. He was a very close companion of the Apostle Paul. That is Luke himself. In fact, if you read the book of Acts, which is the, the history of the church, the birth of the church, and the early years of the church, in the very beginning of the book of Acts, Peter is the prominent figure. 
He's the head of the church. He is the prominent figure. But then, as time progresses, we're introduced to this man named Saul, who persecuted the church, who becomes the one we know to be the Apostle Paul. And as you get toward the end of the book of Acts, the writing it now becomes a first-person account. In other words, Luke is writing as he travels along with Paul. And so Luke was a very close companion of Paul, so he emphasizes Paul, quite frankly, a lot more than he does Peter, for example. That is in the book of Acts. But Luke himself is very knowledgeable for a non-Jew. Luke is very knowledgeable of what we would call the Old Testament and Jewish practices in general. He is clearly a very intelligent man. In fact, he was a physician prior to being one who devoted himself fully to the ministry of Jesus. Now, let me just tell you, Luke was not an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus. Now, remember in the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke, Luke says, I have set out to write an orderly account of who Jesus is. Now, the Gospel of Mark is written by Mark, also known as John Mark. But Mark is written by writing what Peter said, the firsthand account of Jesus. Mark is a firsthand account of what took place from the mouth of Peter. Luke sets out to find people who had experiences with Jesus, disciples and others, and formulates it in what we know to be the gospel of Luke. Luke. So he takes great care in collecting his information. But Luke is not concerned at all about specific times or even places. Because as we see throughout the gospel of Luke, he'll say, for example, there was an occasion when or one time. And sometimes he tells us where it took place and sometimes he tells us in a, by not mentioning the place, that evidently it was either unimportant to him or he didn't know where it was. He's relying on others to share with him about who the good news of Jesus Christ, uh, what that means for, for the whole world. Now, in the Gospel of Luke, there are 28 parables and there are 20 miracles. There are a lot of miracles recorded in the Gospel of Luke uh, from Jesus. There are things about Luke that are very familiar to us that are unique and stand alone in the Gospel of Luke that are different from Matthew and Mark. Now remember, John is just different altogether. So in, the, for example, the Gospel of Luke, you have the parable of the Good Samaritan. It is only found in the Gospel of Luke. You have the story of the prodigal son, only found in the Gospel of Luke. You have the parable of the unjust judge, and you have the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Those are unique to the Gospel of Luke. They're not found in the other Gospels. Now, many of the parables are found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke together, but they're unique. These that I just read to you are unique to the Gospel of Luke. There is one miracle, only one miracle that Jesus performs that are found in all four Gospels. Now, remember, we talked a moment ago about how different John is. John is the gospel with no parables at all, but there are miracles that Jesus performs, as there are in the other three gospels. But the only miracle that is found in all four gospels, does anybody know what it is? The feeding of the 5,000. 
That is the only miracle that we have that you will find in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, other times you'll find it in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but it's not in John. Or it might be in John, but it's in Luke, but it's not in Matthew and Mark, whatever it may be. But that's the only miracle story that we find in all four Gospels. Now, Theophilus means friend of God. So remember how we write letters and remember how it was done in Jesus' day, if you will, and after that. When we write a letter, where is our signature? At the end of the letter, right? If you look at, at Paul's writings, if you will, Paul, from the very beginning, if you will, has his signature. So it, it was flipped. It was at the very beginning, so you know right from the start who has written it. Mark tells us at the very beginning, this is about the good news of Jesus Christ. Luke, if you will, go to chapter 1 of the Gospel of Luke. And let me just tell you all this. Throughout this study, over and over again, we're going to be referring to Old Testament Scripture, New Testament Scripture. What I want you to do is not be embarrassed if you don't know where it is. The whole point of having Bible study is to learn your Bible and to study it. So use your index if you don't know where it is. But turn to the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. Look at chapter 1 very quickly. It says... Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. So Luke is writing to a specific person, but we don't know much of anything about Theophilus, but the name itself means friend of God. He was possibly a Roman official, but we're not even certain about that. But one of the things that's unique to the Gospel of Luke as well, as I mentioned earlier, is that Jesus has a very unique relationship with women in the Gospel of Luke. For example, we have the sinful woman who anoints Jesus' feet. That's found in other Gospels. But we also have the sick girl and the woman with the flow of blood. We have Mary and Martha. We have a woman who's been over and healed. And we have a widow's offering, the widow's might. But in each one of those things, you'll see in the Gospel of Luke that women oftentimes are the example of what faith looks like. And let me give you some um, examples that we see of the difference I mean between how Luke approaches his Gospel and how Matthew does, for example. Because, again, Luke was a non-Jew. He was a Gentile who sets out to interview eyewitnesses to the ministry of Jesus and then records them in what we know to be the Gospel of Luke. Matthew, an eyewitness to the ministry of Jesus, was a Jew. So their two audiences, if you will, are very different. Do you speak to four-year-olds the, the same way you a class of four-year-olds the same way you speak to a class of 40-year-olds? You don't speak the same way, even if you're trying to convey the same message, right? So you have to take into consideration, for example, uh, Matthew's audience and Luke's audience. Let me give you an example of what I mean by that. In the Gospels, there is no birth narrative in John. John makes it very clear from the very beginning. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was who? Who? Who's that a reference to? God, Jesus Christ. In the very beginning was the Word, okay? So what John wants you to know is that Jesus himself has always existed. Why has he always existed? 
because he's God, okay? So there's no birth narrative in John's gospel. In uh, Mark's gospel, there's no birth narrative at all. Now, people will say there's two birth narratives, that there's a birth narrative in the gospel of Matthew and one in Luke. There's actually only one birth narrative. There's only one account in scripture of the birth of Jesus, and that's found in the gospel of Luke. Remember in Matthew, it's the story of the magi who go to a home to present their gifts to the baby that's already been born, right? The only birth narrative is found in the gospel of Luke. Okay, so here's what I want to tell you a little bit about those two. Take those two stories, if you will, and let's look at some subtle differences so you get an idea of the uniqueness of Luke. Okay, in the Gospel of Matthew, now remember, who's Matthew's audience? A Jewish audience. What Matthew is trying to say to his audience is, one of our very own is the anointed one, the Christ. The one you have been waiting for for generations and generations is among us. His name is Jesus. He's one of us, okay? But Jews are very select about who they associate with, their understanding of what the Messiah was going to be like when he comes into the world, etc. So in Matthew's gospel, for example, the angel appears to Joseph. Because in any good Jewish home, who's the one who's going to take charge of the home? The man, right? So the hero, if you will, in the gospel of Matthew with regard to the proclamation that Mary is going to have a baby is Joseph. Because what was Joseph going to do? He finds out Mary is with child and he knows he's not the father. So remember, he's going to divorce her quietly but the angel comes to him and tells him, do not divorce her, take her as your wife, you are to name him Jesus. So the central figure of the story of the birth of Jesus, if you will, from Matthew's perspective, the central figure in the beginning is Joseph, the daddy, which would be the way it's supposed to be. The rebirth of Jesus takes place, after, I mean the, the introduction of Jesus takes place after the birth when the Magi go to present their gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And Jesus, by the way, could have been as much as two years old because remember, Herod decides to kill any child, any male child, two years old or younger for fear of this baby. Now, you are a pretty weak leader when you're fearful of a newborn, but he was fearful of what that newborn represented. So the Magi come and present their gifts. The Magi were, some say they were astrologers, others say that they were kings, and it depends on your interpretation. What we do know about the Magi, or as we often say, the wise men, is that they were highly intellectual and wealthy. So they were very, very prominent figures. So in Matthew's gospel, these prominent figures who have wealth and power and prestige come and bow down before baby Jesus, presenting their gifts, okay? Now, keep that in mind for just a moment. Powerful figures do that. And in Matthew's gospel, once the Magi have their encounter with the baby, they leave quietly, okay? Keep that in mind. In Luke's gospel, who is the central figure? Mary. Mary is the one the angel comes to and says, hey, you're going to have a baby. Well, how can this be? I'm a virgin, right? So Mary is the central figure in Luke's gospel. 
Where is Jesus born? In the most unsanitary, out-of-the-way, backwater town called Bethlehem. No proclamation, no magi. And oh, by the way, let me just tell you, it ain't in there at all. There ain't no drummer boy in any of it, okay? (laughs) So no proclamation, no sanitary conditions. The baby Jesus is born where there is sheep dung and cattle dung. Okay? Completely different, right? Matthew's gospel, the magi bow down. Luke's gospel, the most wretched of conditions. And who are the ones invited, not the magi, but in Luke's gospel, who are the ones invited to celebrate the birth of the Christ child? The shepherds, the lowliest of people. Remember in Jesus' day and time, nobody aspired to be a shepherd. That was a dangerous, dirty job with long hours. It was left to, lack of a better way of saying it, to the uneducated And oftentimes it was passed down from one generation to the next. And it was just a hard job. Shepherds had no voice, if you will. So I want you to see something here. Who gets to be the voice to celebrate the birth of the Christ child into the world? The greatest birth in human history. Who gets to celebrate it and who gets to tell the world? Because remember, the shepherds leave speaking about what happened. The magi are silent. They leave quietly. The shepherds go tell everybody. And here's what I want you to see about the gospel. This is what's so extraordinary about reading the Bible. Is that oftentimes the lowliest of people are given the most extraordinary opportunity to share the good news. So you have the lowliest of people, the shepherds, who are the first ones to tell anybody in human history that the Christ child has been born. God picks the lowliest of people. Now, oftentimes people will say to me, when you look at the birth narratives, if you count Matthew as a birth narrative, which one of them is true? Was he, what, did the Magi come or was he born in a manger or whatever? And the answer is they're both true. And let me tell you why. Remember what I said, think about the audience that they are writing to. Jews are the chosen race. They're the ones who believe that they're, they're anointed one The Messiah is going to come in power and might. So what is Matthew going to emphasize? He's going to emphasize, let me tell you, he's so extraordinary, the most extraordinary of all people have to bow down before him and give him a gift, the Magi. He's going to emphasize the Magi. He is a Jew. He is going to emphasize that daddy did his job. He took care of mama and he took care of the baby. It wouldn't be any other way. Now, remember, Luke, on the other side, is concerned about the marginalized and the outcast. See it throughout his gospel. So what is Luke going to do? Is he going to talk about the magi coming? How can the down and out relate to magi? So what he does is he says, let me tell you, mama suddenly pregnant and said, well, how how in the world can this happen? She's the hero because she is the mother of God. God in flesh. And the lowly and the outcast can relate to a baby born around sheep dung in most unsanitary of conditions in an out-of-way place much more than they could relate to the magi. Are y'all with me? 
Keep in mind the audience in all this. And the shepherds are invited, which means God even cares about those kinds of people. So what it tells us, if you take Matthew and Luke together, is that we believe in an all-encompassing Messiah. It doesn't matter how much money you have, how much education you have, where you live, how influential you are or anything else, you can relate to this Jesus because the wealthiest and the most powerful all bow down before him. And it doesn't matter how low you are. It doesn't matter how wretched you might be. It doesn't matter what other people think about you. You know why? Because you can relate to this Jesus because let me tell you the conditions in which he was born into the world and he's God. So you take the Gospels together and you understand this all-encompassing Messiah. Are you all with me? Okay. So what I want you to see is to keep in mind, oftentimes, the audience and the intent behind their writing. The intent is the same, even with the audience being different. The one in all four Gospels who is standalone that no other human being has ever been like or will ever be like is this one named Jesus. Now, John likes to think and talk about him metaphorically. Now, this John, who wrote what we know to be the Gospel of John, is most likely the author of another book. You know what that one is? The book of Revelation. You ever read Revelation? We did a Bible study on Revelation a little over a year ago. It's weird, right? But it's not weird if you know what those symbols and metaphors represent. So it's just... Keep in mind the audience in which the message was intended to be conveyed, what it's like, and all of that. So they're both true, for example. Luke also, keep this in mind, when he makes reference to Jesus, as is the case, by the way, with the other Gospels, Jesus, just as a human being, oftentimes did not meet the expectations that people had of who he should be. In other words, they had a collective image of who the Messiah should be, how he should act, what he should say. And Jesus, a rabbi, which means teacher, did things backwards sometimes. For example, in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus overturns the tables in the temple the last week of his life. In John's gospel, John records it at the very beginning of his ministry. You know why? It's not that John was saying, those other guys are wrong. It didn't happen the last week. Again, John is speaking metaphorically. John uses a lot of symbolism. What John wants you to know is, by golly, Jesus comes into town. He turns over the tables. They have done that for generations, that kind of behavior. But there is a new sheriff in town. And he flips those tables over. And that metaphorically means things aren't going to be the way they were before. So John puts that at the beginning to make that emphasis. Are you all with me? Okay, so you have to keep those things in mind when you're looking at Scripture. If you try to put them alongside each other and say, well, there's a subtle difference here, because you're going to see, for example, in the Gospels that when they list the disciples, the names don't even always match. Now, we'll talk about that later on, and that's nothing to worry about. There's a reason behind that, but my point is simply to say, oftentimes people who are new to Scripture or people who haven't read it in a long time or just don't know get really confused. So my intent and my purpose is to help you along. It's not to patronize you or to be condescending in any way. My intent is to help you learn. This is the most important book you will ever hold in your hands. It is a sacred and holy book, and it will change your life. 
but you have to be open to an understanding of how it is God chooses to speak to you through this. And don't get hung up all the time on, wait a minute, but Mark puts it this way and Luke puts it this way and they're not absolutely identical. Which one's true? They're, they're both true, okay? Let me give you a quick example. And I've used this before, so just bear with me for those who were in Bible study previously. If we took everybody in this room and we had a big enough bus and we all got on a bus and we went to a Razorback football game. We got here early in the morning. We all got on the bus. We went to the Razorback football game. At the end of the game, we all went out to dinner together. Then we got back on the bus and came back. A week later, I said, I want everybody to write down from the moment you got on the bus to the moment you got home, what happened? How many different versions do you think we're gonna have? As many people as we have in the room, right? Because some people are gonna say, you know what, I didn't even know they scored. I was busy talking to my girlfriend. I don't even like football, but my, my boyfriend wanted me to go. Another guy is going, I don't know what else happened. Did we go out to dinner? I was so angry that the Razorbacks lost. I just couldn't, I couldn't think of anything. I mean, we're all like that. Some people are going to talk about how miserable the bus ride is. And I had to go to the bathroom on the bus, and I kept waiting in line, and, that was, and that's all I can remember. On the, I mean, whatever it may be, we come with different perspectives about what happened. So when you read something in the Gospels, if it's a slightly bit different, that's okay. It's that experience. That's how they remember it, and it's God-inspired. It's still true, okay? So people get hung up on that a lot. Jesus was different. He was a rabbi who did it backwards. Remember what I said a minute ago in the Gospel of John? Comes in town, there's a new sheriff, flip things over. It's not going to be the way it was before. A shining example of that is that Jesus, for example, as a rabbi, goes out and handpicks his disciples. That was backwards. In that culture, in that day and time, the rabbi waited for disciples to come to them. Jesus doesn't wait for anybody to come to him. He goes to them. It's backwards. You don't do it that way, Jesus. You, you, you don't have it right. You're going to start to see why people start to question are you the Messiah or should we look for someone else? Even John the Baptist himself, who baptized Jesus, would one day say through his own disciples, listen, are you the Messiah or do we need to find somebody else? And John's job was to be born into the world to prepare for the coming of the Messiah. But Jesus is so different in terms of meeting the expectations people set, even if those expectations are not realistic or never intended to be lived out the way God intended them to be lived out. People don't know what to do with that sometimes. Um, he eats with the most repugnant of people, uh, eating a meal in Jesus' t day and time was a sign of rec reconciliation. It was an act of uh, intimacy. Uh, and here is Jesus eating a meal. An extraordinary example of this act of reconciliation on the part of Jesus having a meal is think about it. When he is in the upper room, when he is soon to be put to death, what does he do with his disciples? He has the Passover meal. In other words, Jesus reconciles a broken relationship with his disciples before it's even broken. I mean, he knows where he's about to go. It's this extraordinary way in which he lives out ministry. And remember, there are times in Scripture, if you look at the Gospels as a whole, where Jesus appears to be almost weak. 
and they left it in there. For example, there's an occasion when there's a blind man, and he comes to Jesus, and Jesus uses everything in his arsenal. Jesus touches him, Jesus speaks healing, and Jesus uses his own spittle and wipes it on the man's eyes. And then Jesus says, mm, can you see? And the man goes, well, I can see things, but everybody looks like a tree. Jesus has to do it again. Now, I'm telling you, if I were writing the gospel, I wouldn't have put that in there. I wouldn't have. Jesus is in his own hometown at the beginning of the gospel of Luke. We read this. He's in his own hometown, and he opens up the scroll from the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 61, and he reads what the prophet Isaiah said about one who is to come, who causes the blind to see and the lame to walk, etc., etc. And Jesus rolls up the scroll and says to his hometown, Isaiah's talking about me. That's me. And you know what his hometown says? Uh-uh, afraid not. I knew you when you were in junior high. Don't tell me that's who you are. And what do they try to do? Throw him off a cliff. His hometown. Now, I don't know that I would have put that in there, but all those kinds of stories are in there for a reason. It is to give us a feel and an understanding, not only for who Jesus is, but the perception people had of Jesus. In the Gospels, when he is baptized, the Holy Spirit sends him out into the wilderness all alone, and he's attempted to take the power God gave him and use it in a way other than the way he was intended, it was intended to be used. Now, remember, he doesn't give in to temptation, but it tells us that at some level we can relate to this Messiah because the difference is, of course, he didn't give in to temptation, but he was tempted, and there's not a person in this room who hasn't been tempted. And by the way, there's also not a person in this room who hasn't given in to temptation. There's only one who's ever not given in to temptation, Jesus himself, okay? So I just want you to see the different examples that we have of Jesus in a variety of ways in the Gospels. Um, and so we're going to go ahead and get into the Gospel of Luke. We only have about 10 minutes left, and I apologize for that. But I wanted to give some information. Hopefully it's helpful to you. If it's not, um, Jeez, I'm sorry. I'm doing the best I can. Give me a break. Yeah. All right, so uh, we stopped, whenever we stopped back in May, in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. So we're going to pick up with chapter 12, beginning with verse uh, 35. Now, let me just tell you, if you have a red-letter edition of your Bible, it's a whole lot of red right now. Red-letter editions, anytime Jesus speaks, it's written in red. Um, so that it stands out and it's unique. So we are in a part of the Gospel of Luke where Jesus spends a great deal of time giving practical information to people about who he is and how they are to respond accordingly. So remember, one of the things that Jesus does in the Gospels, and this ties into what we're about to start reading, is that Jesus, in a variety of ways, on a variety of occasions, says to his disciples, listen, I'm not always going to be with you. They're going to take me away, and they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I will rise again. Okay? So Jesus tries to warn the disciples. And Mark's gospel, like I said, they're buffoon-like. They're just like, whatever, I don't know. I don't know what you're talking about. Uh, but he does that on several occasions. But Jesus also talks in all four gospels about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so what we see here is Jesus telling people, get ready. Be prepared, be on guard at all times. The faith is not a part-time gig. It is a full-time relationship. 
So here we are, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 12, beginning with verse 35. Let's go. These are the words of Jesus. Be dressed and ready for service and keep your lamps burning. Like servants waiting for their master to return from a wedding banquet, so that when he comes and knocks, they can immediately open the door for him. Notice the sense of urgency here. So what Jesus does is use this parabolic language to describe how important it is if there is a master who is gone and has attended a wedding to be prepared when the master returned home. So you have your lamps lit. Night, day, whenever. You got to be prepared for the coming of the, of the master. Now notice this. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. In other words, people who are alert, who are looking for the master to return. Now, I'm going to give you uh, a little bit of background on this. Who do you, just take a wild stab, who do you think the master might be in all this? Jesus, right? But notice he's speaking in parabolic language for all of us, right? Notice what happens. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, he will dress himself, this is the master, to serve. will have them recline at the table and will come and wait on them. Now, I want you to see the uniqueness of this master. What is the role of the master and the role of the servant? The servant serves the master without exception, right? That's a defined role. Now, what we see again is that's flipped. What we see is that Jesus tells us that when the master returns, for those who are ready and prepared for the arrival of the master, the master is going to wait for you, wait on you. Remember what Jesus said, I did not come to be served, but to serve. Okay, bear with me. Let's keep moving. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them ready, even if he comes in the middle of the night or toward daybreak. Notice every scenario. You got to be ready at night. You got to be ready in the day. You got to be ready in the morning. The master is going to be pleased with the servants who are always prepared. But understand this. If the owner of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into. You also must be ready because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Now, one of the things that Jesus requires or demands from his followers is that a relationship with him is full time and that we have to live in such a way to always be prepared for how he chooses to come to us. Now, he doesn't just mean at the end of time here. What he means is that how he comes to us in any form Remember Jesus said, there are times when I was hungry and you fed me. I come to you in the hungry. I was naked. I come to you in the naked. How does Jesus choose to come to us? It is important to keep in mind that this servant is really the master. But the master, who is the servant, expects his servants, that is his followers, to always be prepared because you never know when he's going to come. It is about the second coming, but it is also about the present reality in which they find themselves, of how he chooses to come. And he refers to himself here as the son of man, which means essentially the human one, fully divine and fully human. That's why he's referred to as the son of God and the son of man, divine and human. 
and it will come in an hour when you do not expect him. Peter asked, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? Now notice this. In order to receive the blessing, what is the blessing? The master waits on the servant. The only way in which the servant receives the blessing is what? To be prepared, to be ready, to be fully engaged in what it means to be in relationship with Jesus Christ. All right. So then Peter, as Peter often does, Lord, are you telling this parable to us or to everyone? And notice that Jesus responds to Peter with another parable. The Lord answered, who then is the faithful and wise manager whom the master puts in charge of his servants to give them their food allowance at the proper time? It would be good for that servant whom the master finds doing so when he returns. Truly, I tell you, he will put him in charge of all his possessions but suppose the servant says to himself, my master is taking a long time in coming. And he begins to, to beat the other servants, both men and women, and to eat and drink and get drunk. The master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he is not aware, that he is not aware of. He will cut him to pieces and assign him in place with the unbelievers. Now, one of the things I want you to see about Luke is there's no holding back on what the consequences are of rejecting the master. Throughout Luke's gospel, and Matthew does this as well, you all, I just got to tell you, I believe in hell because it's in, it's in there all over and over again. Jesus makes reference to it. So when people say, well, there just couldn't be a hell, that, the standard is that there is an expectation. And if you don't meet the expectation, like anything else in life, there are consequences. And so what are the consequences here? Well, people are cut up, uh, and placed with the unbelievers. Where are the unbelievers placed? Hell, right? So keep in mind, we'll talk more about this next week. We're running out of time. We'll go into more detail in just a little bit. But I want to finish this little section very quickly. The servant who knows the master's will and does not get ready or does not do what the master wants will be beaten with many blows. But the one who does not know and does things deserving punishment will be beaten with few blows. Isn't it interesting? There are intentional and unintentional wrongs, and the punishment is according to the knowledge and power of that which is wrong. So if, you, if you, uh, you're not ready and you know you should be, there's a greater punishment than those who don't. From everyone who has been given much, now look at this, underline this, put a star next to it, highlight it, whatever you need. For everyone who has been given much, much will be demanded. And from the one who has been entrusted with much, much more will be asked. Now, we'll talk more about that next week. But what I want you to see, just very briefly, in this initial reading that we have, this parabolic language, is that Jesus is talking about himself. And Jesus, as the master, is ready to come and to serve those who are servants. That's us. He's ready to serve. But you've got to be ready. You've got to be prepared. And if you're not prepared and you're not ready and you have a flippant attitude about all this, there is a punishment. There are consequences to that. There are a lot of people who profess to be Christian who never open up a Bible, never pray, never go to church, never think about God or anything else. Remember what Jesus said? This is another tough one in the Gospel of Luke. Jesus said, some of you are going to say to me, Lord, Lord, and I'm going to say, I don't even know who you are. 
Now, think about that for a moment. I, I told this one time I was in an event with uh, soon-to-be president George Bush, uh, the younger one. I never can remember the numbers, the younger George Bush. And I prayed at this event, and afterwards he came up and he said, man, preacher, he patted me on the thigh. We were sitting there. I was sitting down. He patted me on the thigh, and he said, man, you're a great prayer. And I said, well, thank you very much. I appreciate that. Now, if I saw him at some other point in time, and I walked up to Secret Service and said, listen, he patted me on the thigh. He knows who I am. What would, what would George Bush say? I don't even know you. You know why? Because I didn't really have a relationship with him. I didn't. I mean, it was a superficial kind of one-time experience. What Jesus is trying to stress to people, you all listen to me, is that this is a full-time responsibility. You have to always be prepared, and if you are always prepared, you will be ready to receive the blessings that are coming your way. If you're not, you won't, and there are consequences to not being prepared. Now, we're going to stop here because we are soon to be offline, and we are finished tonight. I appreciate very, very much your presence tonight. I do hope this will be a regular routine for you on Wednesday evenings. There's a lot of good stuff in the Gospel of Luke, a lot to celebrate and a lot to learn. So I do hope this becomes a routine for you to be a part of this on Wednesday evening, those here in Wesley Hall as well as those online. Let's pray. God, we do give you thanks for the privilege we have of opening up your word and Sing it come alive for us. We pray that your spirit will be with us every week as we study the gospel of Luke. You are a great God. You are the one that loves us. You are the one that longs to be in relationship with us desperately. And I pray that we do our part to be in relationship with you, to discover how it is you do come to us time and again, day after day. May we truly be the servants who have our lamps lit, ready to see as you come to us. For all that you give us, for the privilege we have of enjoying the meal we had tonight, we give you thanks for that meal, and we give you thanks for the joy of being in the presence of others. In your holy name we pray. Amen. I do hope before you leave, you'll take a moment to say a word to those who are around you. Thanks for being here.